It is good to be back with you. It has been a while. I'm sorry I haven't been able to visit sooner. Uh, being on staff at Founders um, just keeps me away from other churches, and I don't like that sometimes because when we have brothers and sisters who are worshiping together, sometimes I, I think uh, the only way I get to visit my brothers in ministry is when they invite me. Otherwise, I have duties. So it has been sweet to hear uh, about your church, and I know many of my friends have come to minister to you and told me uh, just how, how wonderful of a time they've had worshiping with you, and I'm just privileged to be here this morning. Again, I'm sorry my family uh, could not join me. We had a, a, just a little illness come up uh, late last night, so uh, they won't be here this morning. But if you would turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3 is where we're going to be this morning. I'm going to read it before we begin. Uh, we're going to be picking up in verse 12 and reading through verse 19. The Word of God says this, See to it, brothers, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if... We hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. And while it is said, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for forty years? Was it not those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Let me ask the Lord's blessing on our time. Lord, thank you for this privilege to worship with this body, your saints, your children. May we seek the word together. May, we, may it speak to our hearts and to our lives, and may we be blessed and nourished by the fruit of your word this morning. Give me clarity as I speak so that I might be a blessing to those who hear. In your name I pray. Amen. In 1984, an Avianca Airlines jet crashed and killed everyone on board. Investigators studying the accident made an eerie discovery when they found the black box. The the cockpit recorders revealed to them that several minutes before impact... A computer-synthesized voice came over the plane's automatic warning system and told the crew repeatedly, pull up, pull up. The pilot, evidently thinking that the system was malfunctioning, snapped, shut up, gringo, and switched off the system. And minutes later, the plane plowed into the side of a mountain and everyone on board passed away. This is an excerpt of a sermon that I heard back in about 2009 by John MacArthur, And this sermon is truly etched into my soul because it was one of the instruments the Lord used to to save me. A warning. And I was driving, uh, I was working construction and driving an off-road dump truck at the time. And I I ran out of, just got sick of listening to the radio. And I put on this sermon about the conscience and how, uh, uh, how corrupt our hearts become in regards to sin. And I saw, when listening to this sermon, my own spiritual bankruptcy, and so this sermon has stuck with me for a long time. These words, pull up, pull up, pull up. 
Now, in the context of our passage this morning, that's really what's happening biblically here. The author of Hebrews is is trying to elevate Christ in the hearts of the believers he's writing to, and because of that, he's asking them, uh, he's warning them about the conduct of their lives and the fact that their faith and the life that they live will be extremely tested. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says, For this reason, pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away. This charge that they should watch carefully. He wants them to elevate Christ in their hearts to such a degree that they would remain in Him until the end. He plants a flag here in this passage in regards to the dangerous and difficult walk of the believer towards Christ. And so what I want to do is draw out three keys to rooting out unbelief in the human heart this morning. Three keys to rooting out unbelief in the heart of the Christian. And the first key would be this. It really is just be aware of the danger. It's nothing magical or nothing profound. It's just beware the danger of unbelief. He says in verse 12, See to it, brothers, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. He says, let it not be in any one of you. He's saying, see to it, beware of it, watch out for it. Make sure that a heart that is like this cannot reside within you. Make sure of this task. Well, this is so true in regards to the human heart because we know that the human heart is more deceitful than any else, anything else and is desperately sick who can know it, Jeremiah 17 te- teaches us. And unbelief, where does it come from? It doesn't come from outside factors that cause, cast doubt on the Scriptures. Actually, unbelief wells up from within our own hearts in regards to doubting God or disobeying God in some form or fashion. The source of this unbelief is not, oh, I heard an interesting argument from some scientist which cast doubt on the Scriptures. No, it's from within. I have an evil, unbelieving heart that would love nothing more than to, at times, run off after an idol. Run off after some other thing that I think will bring more joy than worshiping God with my life. It comes from within. And so we have to watch out for the source of where evil comes from our own hearts. Many parents, as they seek to raise godly children, will prevent them from getting exposure to the world. And this is a lot of wisdom coming from parents who care about this. Exposure to the world can cause harm and expose children to things that they cannot handle or that they should not be exposed to. So there's a lot of wisdom in this. But one thing we have to remember is that the most evil thing our children will ever be exposed to in their entire life dwells within them. It's from their own heart. So I'm not saying that we should abandon all wisdom in regards to watching out for our children, but most importantly, we need to remember that evil comes from within as well. And we have to guard our own hearts. Psalm 139, 23 and 24, why does the psalmist say, "'Search me, O God, and know my heart.'" He says, try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. What is the psalmist doing here? He's saying, I know how deceitful my own heart can be. I know how often I run after idols. 
And I know how troubled and anxious my thoughts can become when things are not going my way or things seem like the circumstances around me are headed for worse times. And so what I need to do is have the Lord search my heart and reveal to me the areas of unbelief within me so that I can deal with them accordingly. The problem lies, believer, when we don't deal with these areas that crop up from within our own hearts. What is the result if the tumor is not dealt with? This passage says that this person would fall away from the living God. In the Greek, this word could be translated to depart from the living God. This is not an accidental stumbling away from God, but actually a willful departure from trusting in and following after God. You say, well, how is that evil? It's rebellious to disobey or disbelieve the commands of God or to not follow everything that he says. It's a rebellion to go your own way, to depart from his path. It's almost as if you're nailing Christ to the cross all over again and crucifying him again because he bought you out of idolatry, and when you run off after idols, you're putting him right back up on the cross, castigating him, mocking him, scourging him. And notice that the author of Hebrews says that you will fall away from the living God. Why does he reference God as the living God here? Because if you depart from him, if you turn from him, if you, if you run from God to anything else, if you put your hope in anything else, you're running after nothing but a dead and false God. You're looking for joy to come from an idol that can never truly produce it. You're buying fool's gold, so to speak. This departure from God that is rooted in evil unbelief, we must beware of the danger. If we think that once we are secure in Christ, that unbelief cannot well up within our own heart, we're deceiving ourselves. We're ripe for the picking. We're an easy target for Satan. And what is Satan doing? Prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And if you look at the context of that passage, what you'll notice is that he's talking about prideful young men. The pride of a young man, that, that incredible self-confidence. I can handle it, mom and dad. I can handle it. I can think through it on my own. That is the, the heart of, of self-deception that is not understanding that the, the danger is there. And if I'm overconfident, or if I get too comfortable in my walk with Christ, then evil, unbelieving heart can well up, and idols can be formed All of us know that simply knowing we have weeds in the garden doesn't deal with the weeds in the garden. We, we have to ask God to reveal these things for us, but we have to be willing to take action against them. I was walking out of my house this morning, and I saw weeds in the garden. And I was thinking, man, it'd be really nice if those things disappeared. I acknowledge them. I'm aware of their presence. But are they going to disappear on their own? No. I have to do work in my life to actively say, I acknowledge their presence. I need to call them what they are, because sometimes they look like, oh, maybe they don't look so bad right now. But I need to call them weeds. I need to know what their, their purpose and their intent is. And then I need to go and pull them. And so our second key for this morning to rooting out unbelief in the heart of a Christian is to commit to the battle against unbelief. Verse 13 this is a mutual battle that we share together as believers, but encourage one another day 
uh, one another day after day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Here's our tactics to fight against unbelief, unbelief through mutual encouragement. Every day you're going to be presented with a circumstance or some reason to doubt God. Every day you're going to have some sort of trouble or trial or desire welling up within you that causes you to want to disobey God's commands. And so we have a corporate responsibility to lovingly come alongside and encourage one another to remain in our confession of belief. We're supposed to encourage one another with the truth, to lift up one another's souls when we're falling into temptation. Encouraging one another in sanctification. Now to the author here of Hebrews, faith and what you believe and what you live in your sanctification are completely tied together. They're inseparable. He says in chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, take hold of your confession seize it actively. And then in 15 and 16, immediately after that, he's saying, begin not talking about what is, uh, don't just talk about it. He's saying, live what we confess. And we'll look at later, he does that elsewhere in this, um, in this book. But Hebrews 10, 23 through 25 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Here is the same thematic language. Keep on believing, but there is action tied to this. In verse 24, he says immediately, Let us consider how to stir one another up to what? To, to more cognitive believing? No, love and good deeds. So when he says, I want you to confess something or hold on to this confession you've made in Christ... He believes that your confession is not just what you say with your mouth, it's what you live with your life. And he also says that the evaluation of what you confess is not going to come specifically from your mouth. It's going to be, what does your life say you believe? This is maybe the truest form of which actions speak louder than words. He's saying your actions are your confession. Your life is your confession to Christ. Because if you truly love Christ, if, you truly, if He's your all in all, if you've given up everything to follow after Him, your confession will have an impact on the way you walk, the way you think, the way you renew your mind, the way you battle temptation. Every, it'll permeate every aspect of your life. Faith and action linked together form our confession. I told my kids, if I tell you that I love you, but I do not feed you, do I love you? And my son says, no. I said, so when you tell me, Dad, I want to obey, I want to do what's right, but then you choose not to do it, do you really want to do it? Son, when you say you respect me, but then you do the opposite of what I ask you to do, do you really want to respect me? He's like, oh, I want to respect you. I said, I know you want to respect me, but not if it's going to cost you Loving yourself in the moment. And so he's starting to see that, I, yeah, I do have that, but it's secondary to what my heart's desire is. And so we're starting to identify where this evil heart comes from. And we're able to unpack it and go to war against it together. Our confession comes from our actions and our faith. 
You can't claim to worship God if you're corrupt in your business practices. You can't claim to love God if you're living in unrepentant patterns of sin in your life. You should be struggling in your assurance. We can't abandon our sanctification when it gets difficult or when our heart desires certain things. We, we can't abandon our sanctification when the world starts pressing in on us. We can't abandon sanctification when it's inconvenient. We have to pursue it. And these people were fa- facing persecution. And he's saying, hold fast. Be strong. Stand firm in your confession. Hendrickson, a commentator, said this about this mutual encouragement. He says, We as individual believers, united by faith, have the obligation to expel the forces of unbelief from the sacred precincts of the church, the body of Christ. What do we do when we gather here? We mutually encourage one another to love and good deeds, which in its very action expels error, expels unbelief from the body of Christ, which is producing a purified church, a church that that Christ is proud and pleased with. And then he puts a temporal condition on this. He says, as long as it is still called today, this is the pursuit we're supposed to have, as long as it's still called today. This is a reference to time, and it's also hearkening back to earlier in this chapter, if you look at verse 7, if you look at verse 7 and verse 8, he says, therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness. Now what this is, is this is a quote directly from Psalm 95. So you have the author of Hebrews quoting Psalm 95 to teach us and to provide the context through which he's telling the believers now that they ought to root out unbelief. So when he says, as long as it is called today, he's saying, until Christ returns. Now, when This was written in the Old Testament. They were looking to the Messiah to come. But now in the New Testament, the author of Hebrews is saying, until Christ returns, be about this work. This is your charge. Root out the unbelief in your hearts. Do not harden your hearts against the Lord. Now, what is the the context of this quote from Psalm 95 If you were to look at Exodus 17, you would see the story of the Israelites and how in their journey in the Exodus, they continually grumbled and complained against God. God provided them rescue, and they grumbled. God provided them guidance, and they grumbled and complained. God provided them food, and they grumbled and complained. And they said, Moses, why have you brought us up from Egypt? And Moses said, why do you contend with me? Why do you test Yahweh? This was the signs of unbelief that was welling up in the heart of the people. They grumbled about everything that they wanted, and they complained, why can't they go back to Egypt? And therefore, God says, I was angry with them in this generation. And he said, they always go astray in their heart, and they did not know my ways. There it is. Their hearts had unbelief. Their actions followed. They did not know my ways. And as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. 
Now, it's interesting. How long did it take the Israelites when, when Moses went up on the mountain? How long did it take them to find a new God? Has it ever baffled you? Has it ever baffled you? It's like, okay, Moses, you're going to go up on this mountain and talk to God. And we see the power of God on display. And it wasn't like five seconds before they're like, all right, guys, what do you think? Moses, our leader, our fearless leader, hasn't come down. We don't know what happened to him. You know what we should do? Let's find another God. You know what this tells us? They didn't come up with the idea to worship another God the moment Moses went up the mountain. It tells us a couple things. Maybe, a, maybe one of a couple things, but here's maybe some scenarios. Either one, unbelief was already in their hearts. That's for sure. They, God rescued them from Egypt, but immediately they didn't want to bow the knee in their ways. They were happy to be rescued out of slavery at first, but they didn't want to obey God's commands and submit to Him as Lord. Additionally, this also tells us, I think that they were putting their hope in Moses. Moses, their fearless leader, who parted the Red Sea, I think they looked up to Moses as their leader. And when he went up on the mountain, they said, well, we don't know what happened to him, so let's find a new God. I think that they were just craving for another God to worship, a God of their own making, a God who wouldn't chide them for disobedience, a God who would grant them all that they desire and let them pursue all of their fleshly idols. That's what was going on in the heart of the Israelites. They worshiped other gods, they disobeyed God's ways, and they grumbled and complained with the provision that he was giving them. They were hardened in their hearts towards God. They were seared in their consciences. Their hearts were so burned up by sin that they were no longer sensitive to the instruction of God, and they were no longer sensitive to the wickedness of sin. It's not that they couldn't remember walking through the, sea, the Red Sea on dry land. They didn't want to yield to the power when it was going to cause them to have to give up their fleshly desires. And so what does he say? Encourage one another, as long as it is still called today. Remember, hearken back, Psalm 95, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I think it's important at this juncture to kind of dissect our own hearts a little bit, to dive into how do we become hardened? Because I imagine everyone in this room would say, I acknowledge God, I love God. How does a heart become hardened? And I think that Spurgeon really outlined how this process takes place. And if you don't know how it happens, sometimes it can be hard to root it out. He said the first step down towards unbelief is this. A carefulness, or a loss of carefulness and tenderness toward God's word and towards God's ways. So what, what this really would mean is this. Step number one is this. I'm just not on guard in regards to temptation. I'm just not on guard in regards to a little bit of doubt whether God's going to provide for me in this difficult season. I'm not on guard in regards to temptation. Just relaxing a little bit. Maybe I imagine that the, the enemy and his temptations way, way, way behind me and I'm way out ahead in Christ rather than living where he's right on my heels and I've got to run with all my might today. The second step would be this, a neglect or a laziness in regards to private devotion to God. We've all experienced that, haven't we? Life gets busy 
things come up, and the time that you had had planned to spend time with God today in prayer and studying His Word, being nourished by His truths, ah, oh, I didn't get to it. And you know what's so clever about Satan when this happens? When you neglect to, to have that time to devote yourself to God each day, to renew your mind, he doesn't bring the temptation yet. See, if he brought you the temptation and you fell into sin that day, what would you do the next day? You'd run right back to the Word. But he's clever. He waits. Because if he can get you to just have that, that experience of neglecting their, your time with God and to be nourished by its truths for, for more than one day, he can start to develop a pattern. And you know, you're like, oh man, I missed my time in God's Word yesterday. But you know what? As I think about it, I didn't fall into any, any heinous sins. I didn't see myself getting off track. So you know what? Okay, well, I survived that. Praise God. But then you didn't have it today. And nothing happened again. And you didn't have it tomorrow. And nothing happened again. And before you know it, you developed patterns of neglect. Habits of neglecting God's Word. Habits of not being nourished by it. And then Satan brings the temptation when you've already separated yourself so far from these patterns that protect us from sin. David said, I hide God's word in my heart that I might not sin against him. So then, because of your laziness and neglect, you, you, Spurgeon says you have a, a lack of shock when you are separated from your spiritual disciplines. Oh man, I haven't prayed. It used to shock you if you haven't spent time in prayer to God, but now you're just comfortable with it. I'm used to it. I, don't, I, I pray here and there. Then he says you start to fall into sin that produces less sorrow and brokenness than it once produced. Remember when you were a first believer, when you were brand new in Christ and you sinned and you were like, oh, I grieved my Lord. Well, at this stage, when you've neglected these things and you've lost your spiritual disciplines, you're missing that sorrow that you once knew when you sinned. Sin is no longer grieving to your soul. And then the next step, because sin causes less grief, it is practiced more freely. You practice it more. Do you see the steps down towards unbelief in our hearts? And then he says, after this, the heart grows more hard towards any kind of criticism or rebuke. See, God gave us this passage to help us mutually encourage one another in steps one, two, and three, and the, with the hope that we would never get down to step six, where suddenly when you come and talk to your friend and say, hey, brother, I just, I've noticed something different about you. Is everything okay? They're like, hey, what's that supposed to mean? Why are you getting all up in my life? Why are you caring about me? Proverbs 18 speaks of this. In verse 1 it says, He who separates himself seeks his own desire and rages against all sound wisdom. You young men, watch out for this one. Young men in here, boys in here. When you start to separate from your fathers and mothers, in your mind and in your heart, you start to keep stuff from them, and you start to not talk to them about what's going on in your life as much. Are you falling into Proverbs 18.1? I'm separating from them because I, I don't want to have any questions asked of what I want to do. I don't want to have any wisdom brought to my pursuits. I want to do it my own way. We grow hard towards rebuke and criticism. And if you ask any shepherd in the church or anyone who's been in the church for a long time, isn't it so true that the people that end up leaving often, not always, often, 
have some sort of unrepentant pattern of unbelief, and when you stepped on it, they bolt. It's evidence of this downward spiral towards unbelief. It's grieving to the Lord. It's grieving to the church. Down, down, down towards unbelief. So believers, we have to ask ourselves, have we ever had seasons of unrepentant sin? We've all had seasons of sin, but have we had seasons of active unrepentance for sin? Maybe you've cried Esau's tears, you didn't like the consequences of sin, but have you hated the sin itself? Heed this warning. Encourage your brothers and sisters in this endeavor. Build one another up in love and good deeds. Call one another to repentance when you start to see a callous forming on your life where the sin that used to grieve you doesn't really grieve you that much anymore. That's a terrible sign. And look, we're not alone in this struggle. The disciples who walked with Jesus struggled with the same stuff. If you look at Mark chapter 6, you don't have to turn there. You guys know the story, very familiar. After feeding the 5,000, They sent everyone away, and the the disciples went out on a boat, and Jesus wanted to be alone for a while. Then in a storm, he came to them walking on the sea, and they cried out, oh my goodness, it's a ghost. They were terrified, and he hops in the boat, and the wind stopped, and they were utterly amazed. And what does verse 52 say? They had not gained any insight about the loaves, but their heart was hardened. And then, that's not it. After feeding the 4,000 in Mark chapter 8, In verse 13 it says, And leaving them, he again embarked on the way to the other side, and they had forgotten to take bread and did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. And he was giving orders to them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. That's Jesus kind of speaking in code, like, Watch out, you don't have that same heart of doubt of my power. And they didn't really understand him because they don't get Jesus' metaphors and their foolishness. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. Whose fault is it that they didn't bring bread? What are we going to do? How are we going to get out of this? Are we going to strategize? He just fed 5,000 and then 4,000, and they're already questioning whether or not they're going to have food. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Imagine how that... That question would have landed. Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are you dense? Do you have a hardened heart, he asks them? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? And then he asked this rhetorical question. How many baskets full of broken pieces you picked up? And sheepishly, I imagine, they said... But he wasn't done. He says, when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said, seven. And he was saying to them, do you not yet understand? Do you not have complete 1,000% faith and dedication that I know what I'm doing and I can provide for your every need, especially your greatest need, the need for your soul? When I was studying this passage, it immediately brought up to my mind, my heart towards my children when they were babies, and how every day about dinner time, what do the babies start to do? They get real fussy. They start to cry out for food. And I used to think, 
I mean, I think my record's pretty good of getting food into your belly, right? I think, I think we've had a pretty consistent run here. Let me think. Has there ever been a time where we've let you go to bed hungry? No. Has there ever been a time where you've gone to bed screaming and crying, they never fed me? No. And what does the baby do? Still cries. I don't know if you're really going to do it this time. And I'm like, what's wrong with you? I've, been, I've had a perfect record. Isn't this what we do with God, believers? Isn't this what we fall into? We don't trust him. We don't follow him. We don't do what he asks, trusting that he will deliver on his promises. Thankfully, God is patient with us. Thankfully, he says, as long as it is still called today, and thankfully he hasn't returned, and we still have time to root out more unbelief in our hearts, to encourage one another day after day. If that unbelieving heart, that disobedient heart of Israel is welling up inside of you, believer, it's our corporate responsibility to lift one another up in prayer and in love, helping each other to believe and to not be like Israel, calling us back to the living God. He says in, this, in verse 14, turning back to our text, For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm to the end. This is kind of hearkening back to the idea that many people followed Jesus for a time. Crowds followed him. Many people came to him for learning, and then, or maybe what they really came for was signs and wonders. And when Jesus said, I give you the bread of life, I'm not not just here to give you free meals, what did they all do, the 5,000? They left. God is looking for believers who are going to hold on until the end with their mouth and with their life. So do you still trust Him with your soul? And if you trust Him with your soul, can you trust Him with your provision? And if you trust Him with your provision, can you trust Him for your life's direction? And if you trust Him for your life's direction, can you trust in Him when, the, when your temptations are rising up within you and your desires for the flesh are chasing after you and you're wanting to just chase after them? Can you trust in Him that He can provide more satisfaction than whatever it was that you were desiring in your heart? Can you trust in Him to get you through the trials. Because unbelief is patient as well. It will wait for us to slip up. It will wait for us to get lazy in our spiritual walk. Satan will nurture sinful fear in our hearts. He will nurture lustful pleasure in our minds. He will nurture selfish ambition and a grumbling spirit like he did in the wilderness. Even though they saw signs every single day, he can nurture unbelief. And before you know it, you might find you're one of the people in Romans chapter 1, verse 21. For even though they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God or give thanks. And they became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Maybe you made a, a quick profession of faith, but when it truly was tested, you ran after idols, or you depended on your own strength, you didn't want to glorify God or give thanks to Him, and you fell down towards unbelief. So do you live as though Christ cannot satisfy you? Do you hold on to some sin that you used to love and Christ having bought you, you're just wrestling with it and you need to abandon it? Do you fail to trust in God for protection and provision? 
These are those rebellious cancer cells that we have to find and identify and kill. These are the weeds of unbelief that need to be rooted up. And if you need any motivation in the struggle against the deceitfulness of sin, he gives us a really great reminder in verses 16 through 19. This third key, remember the fruit of unbelief. Look back at what happened. And he asked these rhetorical questions, these obvious questions. Who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, was it not those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? This is where the blame sits. They saw, they heard, they were witnesses, and they didn't need anything else. But God was angry with them. And who was he angry with for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? He's like, keep the nation of Israel in the Exodus at the front of your mind all the time. Is any part of my heart like theirs? So that God will not have to say about you, they will not enter my rest. Now, if you say this is left up to me, that'd be pretty discouraging because I know the deceitfulness of my own heart. But thankfully, because of the gift of the Holy Spirit and because of what Christ has accomplished on the cross, we're not alone in this battle. We have the mutual encouragement of the body and we have the inner testimony of the Holy Spirit, those who believe. And so while we are working out our salvation with fear and trembling, what does that verse also say? It is God who is also working in us for His good pleasure. So you're not walking alone in this pursuit, but you have the power of the Holy Spirit to help you believe. That is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. To every day you wake up, help you to believe that God is sovereign over all and believe that Jesus Christ's sacrifice was sufficient and now to believe that your life is no longer your own. Because love, the love of Christ was so amazing and so divine that it demands your soul, your life, your all, that you would love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength to give everything. And He helps you believe it today. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news proclaimed to them failed to enter because of disobedience. Failed to enter because of disobedience. Their unbelief and their disobedience are linked, and we have to make sure that we're not comfortable with just merely our verbal confession, but we're only comfortable when our life matches our verbal confession. So was it unbelief or disobedience? The answer is yes. It was both. Three million people buried in the desert. Three million people in 38 years. God destroyed that generation and preserved for himself a generation that would believe in his name and not grumble and complain at his provision. See, the problem with Israel is they thought lightly of the kindness of God, like Romans warns us. In Romans chapter 2, don't think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of revelation and the righteous judgment of God. Don't think, kind, don't think lightly of the kindness of the Lord. So ask yourself, what kind of confession do I have? Do I have a verbal confession that will come to church and memorize my Bible verses? And I have a verbal confession that will look Christian? Or is my heart overflowing with belief? 
Is my actions overflowing with belief? Do I have a transformative confession? Hebrews 3, 6, Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are a part of, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope. This is the idea of taking hold of that confession. Letting this confession permeate every aspect of your life so that the confession has also taken hold of you. You take hold of the confession and the confession takes hold of you. Because it's God who's working in you. So what I love is the beauty of this warning. You have David warning his people in Psalm 95 about the dangers of the Exodus and the heart of the Israel. And then you have Hebrews quoting David to warn people a thousand years later. And then you have us 2,000 years later warning the same pattern, carrying on the tradition of warning each other decade after decade, century after century, millennia after millennia. And if you're saying, you know, God is taking a long time, I've got time to repent. If you're saying, I've got time to repent, I love what J.C. Ryle wrote, and I quote this to my students all the time. He said this in uh, Thoughts for Young Men. He said, True repentance is never too late, but late late repentance is rarely ever true. Because a lot of us are saying, "Ah, I'll follow God with all my heart later. I want to experience more of the world. But that's the same heart that Israel had. And today might become tomorrow if you wait too long. So what does he say? As long as it is called today. Believe today. Scriptures warn us about what happens to a man who says, who's betting on late repentance. Proverbs 29.1 A man who hardens his neck after much reproof will suddenly be broken beyond healing. And just as God smite the people that formed and built the golden calf, we need to find the golden calves of our own heart that our heart manufactures and put them to death to remove the tumor. I love the example in, of the father in Mark 9 as, Jesus asks, or as he asks Jesus to heal his son. He says, Jesus, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus says to him, if you can, like, are you questioning whether I can? He says, all things are possible to him who what? Believes. And immediately the boy's father cried out and was saying, I do believe. Help my unbelief. He's saying, I with all my heart want to believe. I'm sure there's parts of me that still don't even believe, but find them and just help it. I want every ounce of me to believe and every part of my life to believe. And so perhaps in your life today, there's some area of your life where you've been practicing unbelief. You haven't given up on your confession, but you've got some sort of unbelief welling up in your heart. You've known about it. You've even noticed that pattern that Spurgeon talked about, that, that, that stumbling down in those patterns. Maybe you're struggling to submit to the Lord, and today your prayer needs to be, Help my lack of submission. Maybe you've been struggling to be grateful for what God's given you and you need to say, Lord, I am grateful. Help my ungratefulness. Maybe you've been disobedient and you need to say, Lord, help my disobedience. Perhaps you're struggling with contentment. You need to say, help my unbelieving discontentment. Or how about ones that fracture the church? Lord, I'm struggling to forgive that other person. Help my unforgiveness. 
These are the things that we're supposed to encourage one another with day after day, while it is still called today. And if your brother and sister is encouraging you and warning you with love, don't stiff-arm them. Instead, hear it as that warning system saying, pull up, pull up, pull up. And embrace them as a brother and sister in Christ and say, thank you for encouraging me while it is still called today. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you for your mercy and kindness and your patience with us as we deal with our hearts which are so easily deceiving us, causing us to stumble. Forgive us for how often our eyes look away from you into worldly things. Forgive us for how often we grumble. Forgive us for how often we do not trust in you. May we as a body of believers, as your children, continue to believe, not only with our words, but with our thoughts and our actions and our very lives, that we would be shining lights of people who have a fixed hope, and that we might look every single day towards the skies, awaiting your return. In your name I pray. Amen.